Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 242 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with former Maryland Governor Bob Ehrlich. He's a former governor of Maryland from 2003 to 2007 for the Republican Party. He's a former congressman, having represented the 2nd District of Maryland, a former delegate, having represented District 10 in Baltimore County, an attorney, and the author of three books, with the fourth book forthcoming. Governor Ehrlich, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? My pleasure, Jordan. Good to see you. Yeah. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done <laughs> to advance the public interest, and why? <laughs> Well, I guess it depends on your definition of public interest, but uh, I think it's important that uh, everyone uh, sort of divide the question. Mm-hmm. You divide it into the personal and the professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, the professional, you just talked about my resume. Mm-hmm. Uh, public service has been a large part of my life, uh, particularly policy now, the post-politics, post-elected politics. Mm-hmm. A lot of policy, I give a lot of speeches fourth book coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've uh, uh, obviously been prominent in some, some national campaigns. Mm-hmm. So uh, policy, the direction of the country is important to me. And, and through public service, you're able obviously to, to work on the ends that you think are important for the economy, for the culture, for the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I divide the question because uh, obviously your personal life is, is very important. I think being a contributing member uh, of society means being a good husband, being a good father, mm-hmm. uh, obviously uh, giving back to the community. So that, that, that personal uh, part of your life is important. You know, I'm very close to my family. My mom and dad are still around, mm-hmm. fortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, our kids, uh, right. two boys, Kendall. So I think that uh, that's, that's your foundation. So, yeah, so and then it's difficult a lot of times. Let's let's talk about the merging of the personal and professional lives. Uh, you Having been in multiple elected offices, uh, obviously you work in Washington and commute from Annapolis. Mm-hmm. You have been in public life for most of your adult life mm-hmm. while you've had uh, your, your children. I guess, has it been difficult to balance? I'm sure it has been difficult to balance the personal and professional uh, legacies or, or in your lives. Yes and no. Um, I give a speech to fathers. I'm a big old fatherhood, as you, as you know, yeah. reading my resume, my books, and all that. Uh, and, and the central point of my, my lectures is things typically turn out the way you allow them to turn out, which means you control your schedule, which means the excuse, I don't have time for my kids, or I don't have time for my spouse, or I don't have time for fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Is is an excuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as someone who runs around talking about the importance of fatherhood and families, I better make that time. Yeah. And so uh, uh, there is some compromise, but the bottom line is when you set the rules of the road, when you set the guidelines out at the beginning, as I did as a member of Congress and, mm-hmm. and as governor, with your staff, they'll get it. Mm-hmm. If you're serious, mm-hmm. they'll get it. Which means if there's a baseball game, if there's a football game, yeah. if there's a basketball game, we're, we're a jock family. It could be, you know, it could be a play, it could yeah. be a concert for another family. But in our family, it's, it's usually athletics. You're there. You're there. There's always another speech. Mm-hmm. There's always another Lincoln Day dinner. Yeah. There's always another constituent meeting. There's not always another game with your kid. 
So talk to me about, so when you were first delegate, did you have, were you a father? I was single. I was single. You were single at the time. You hadn't even met your wife. That's correct. Uh, well, I met her on election day running for re-election to the state legislature. So, yeah, so your first time running for office, you were on Second time, own. second time. Uh, yeah. yeah. By first, first term, first yes, correct. So I'm not a father. Many individuals listening to this podcast may not have children, and, of course, many listening to this podcast episode are parents. So you have a unique perspective of having been able to be in elected office and have the responsibility of serving the constituency, but also, and not having to make sacrifices to see your kids' games because there were no kids. And then you have the perspective of being a father. Yeah. Would you say, how would you say that being a father has changed your perspective and your ability to govern in elected office? Well, um, the easier answer is that it, impacts you as a person more mm-hmm. you're less selfish hmm. you're able to more act more outside yourself it's not all about you it's suddenly about first your family your wife and then it's about your kids mm-hmm. so you become less self-centered uh, which it means you're growing up <laughs> it means you're growing up yeah. and, and and so uh, it's not always the selfish thing it, it can't be uh-huh. If you're going to have a healthy marriage, if you're going to have healthy children right. and relationships with those children, it can't all be about you. Yeah. Did you have any advice from mentors, especially in elected Not office? Not in that respect. No, no, no. no. Everybody has to find their own way, really. Yeah. You know, and, and everyone's family situation is, is different. Mm-hmm. So I've certainly had some Did your constituents advice. notice like any difference from when you were attending all the events versus when you became a father and you had to start missing events for your family? As I said, I, I, you have to work hard. Uh, there are compromises, but people were pretty understanding when you say, look, um, I'll give that speech, but it has to be Thursday, not Tuesday, right. because on Tuesday there's a ball game. Yeah. And people are pretty understanding. And quite frankly, if they're not, yeah. they don't get it. But I have found, uh, for the most part, 95% of the time, people understand family obligations. And now that your boys are grown, do they understand? Well, not – I still got 13-year-old. Oh, okay. Drew, in fact, is at uh, Villanova football camp today. Okay. So he left as, as a freshman football player. So let's talk a little bit about your decision to go into elected office. Now, neither of your parents have been involved in politics uh, you ended up going, I believe, on scholarship to high school at Gilman, yeah. and then uh, later to scholarship at Princeton, and you ended yeah. up coming from someone of a working-class background, having to work your way through school. Yeah. How did that shape your political views? First of all, were your parents even Republican? And then, and then how did it shape your views to have to work through school? And then uh, how did you decide ultimately to even enter politics? Uh, about four questions there. Yeah. Uh, Mom was Republican, Dad was a Democrat, but um, uh, my dad was a Truman Democrat, Kennedy Democrat, that Democratic Party that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where I grew up in, in working class Arbutus, everybody was a Democrat. Uh, my mom uh, was one of the few Republicans, and uh, my, my applause line, my laugh line at Republican events uh, is my mom was Republican, Dad's a Democrat, my dad married up. Yeah. Which was a good, cheap laugh line. But... Um, uh, Philosophically, that Democratic Party that I grew up with was very conservative. Uh, the local legislators, fiscally or socially, both, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that Democratic Party was uh, pro-business, pro-gun, pro-life, and uh, 
that again you you rarely see that Democratic Party today. It's basically been wiped out. Mm-hmm. But even so, that Democratic Party was alive and well when I was growing up. That Democratic Party was actually alive and well when I first entered the legislature, because uh, uh, the joke from a number of the Democratic committee chairs in the Senate at the time was, "We would be Republicans, but they're too liberal for us." Because you had a lot of Democratic leadership. Was Rockefeller Republican. No, well, 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 but the Democratic, the Democratic chairmen mm-hmm. were uh, bar owners, restaurant owners uh, from rural areas. They were uh, pro-gun, pro-life, mm-hmm. uh, and the whole nine yards. So uh, very hawkish with regard to defense. So that, again, that Democratic Party was a, a Democratic Party I felt comfortable in. Huh. So party identification really wasn't that big a deal to me because. Where I came from, the Democrats and Republicans thought pretty much alike. Huh. And that was still the case when I entered the legislature. And my committee chairs, for instance, mm-hmm. were all very conservative Democrats. But you were a Republican. Yes. Yeah. So how did they treat you? When they you treated came? me great yeah. because we agreed 95% of the time. Uh-huh. And the Republicans were such a joke, such a small number. I was one of uh, 13 Republicans in a body of 141 members in huh. the House Oh wow! my first term. That there wasn't any partisanship. Who was going to beat up on thirteen members? Right. But the fact of it is, the real lines were between the Democrats, mm-hmm. uh, the rural, outer suburban Democrats, and the very liberal Montgomery County, Prince George's County, Baltimore City Democrats. And uh, so, same thing in Congress. When I went to Congress. There were still a blue dog group of bull weevils. The, the conservative Democrats from the South and the West were a major player when I was a member of Congress. They're wiped out today as well. The blue dogs. Yeah. So uh, uh, in any event, uh, they were the legitimate uh, negotiator uh, party when I was in, in the House. They were the third party, Yeah. quite frankly. Uh, so, David, so, so philosophically, it was very easy for me to be a Republican. I could easily have been a Democrat. Uh, uh, because where I came from, the Democrats and Republicans pretty much thought the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, your other question was, so what did that do to me, how that impact me? And, and the fact of it is, uh, I believe athletics, being a very competitive person, having some success in the athletics, mm-hmm. learning those lessons through athletics, uh, really drove my competitive nature, and, and really that competitiveness lends itself to politics. You know, politics is very much like athletics. You prepare, yeah. there's a contest, you win, you lose. Very clear. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, very clear lines in, in, in the end game. Right. So I do believe that the fact that I had some uh, success in athletics, mm-hmm. some notoriety, uh, I was able to use particularly football yeah. as my ticket in life. Uh, you know, that's similar to deal. the current speaker of the Maryland House of Delegates, mm-hmm. yeah, Mike, Mike Bush, Bush yes. who is, refers to himself as coach. Yes, because he was a football coach at a high school, I believe. St. Mary's, yes. Yeah. So, um, all right, so you end up getting involved in politics, and you end up uh, uh, as a Republican, uh, and I guess, well, and you end up uh, running for the House of Delegates, uh, and you say in Maryland, at that time, there wasn't much difference between the GOP and the Democratic Party. Well, one wing of the Democratic Party. One wing of the Democratic Party. And, of course, you go up to Congress to represent the 2nd District at a later point in your career, and did you notice greater differences between the parties? Well, uh, the dominant wing, uh, the, the at the time, the liberal progressive wing was becoming more dominant. Hmm. And, and so I saw 
the ranks of the once dominant conservative Democrats in the House get thinner yeah. and thinner and thinner to today you can't see them anymore. In and fact, they were the ones that you were co-sponsoring legislation. Sure, sure. Yeah, natural allies, obviously. So uh, looking across the aisle and walking across the aisle and working across the aisle was easy. It wasn't like such a big deal to have a bipartisan piece of legislation. It was no. almost a modus operandi. Well, um, it, was le- it was more... Uh, Frequent because you had those Democrats who pretty much were, were moderate to conservative in the South and the West, from the South and the West. Right. What's happened, as you know, being a student of political science, is because of uh, line drawing mm-hmm. um, and, and the creation of minority districts, right. obviously voting rights districts, uh-huh. uh, and black caucuses and Republicans. Uh, forming coalitions and drawing lines in state legislatures over the years, you've now had sort of those white Democrats from the South and the West wiped out. You have more members of the Black Caucus. How do you feel about gerrymandering, by the way? Well, I, I, I hate it. I, I hate it. Would um, you support a nonpartisan independent redistricting commission to draw congressional lines? Yeah, yes, but yeah, I'm a Republican. It's easy for me to say. It's never going to happen with Mike Bush. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people really do not give up power uh, unilaterally, and particularly in this state, sort of a monopoly state. Well, let's talk about that, giving up power. You know, I, We're here to talk a, a lot about motivations for public service. Why would somebody want to do this? A lot of times if, when I ran for the House of Delegates, people would come to me and say, Jordan, you know, you seem like a nice guy. Why would you want to go into politics, you know? It's a dirty business with dirty players. It can be. And, you know, but... But I also think, and I started this podcast because I think that people earnestly believe in advancing the public interest. No, I, well, I think I think you have a cross section. And why not? Why and, and why would giving up power be such a problem if you think it's the right thing to do? Well, the, you ask Mike Miller, Mike Bush, that not me. Uh, but uh, quite frankly, it's counterintuitive in politics, which politics is all about power. Now, because power can be used in a positive way and a negative way. Using power isn't a negative thing necessarily. Mm-hmm. You're running because you want to use political power to get to your political goals, right? Exactly. And so it's not a bad thing. Uh, the problem is the Republicans do it to Democrats and Republicans uh, states. Democrats do it to Republicans and Democratic states. Do you ever have, do you, and maybe you don't, but off the top of your head, do you have a memory where you were forced to choose between what was politically advantageous for you, what would augment or re- or maintain your power, and a choice, uh, and the other other choice would have been something that you thought was really the right thing to do for the people of Maryland or the people mm-hmm. of the second yeah. or tenth district. Yeah, how did you handle that? Can you elaborate on that? I called a special session on tort reform when medical malpractice rates were running out of control and. Uh, trial lawyers in the legislature uh, sent me a bill which uh, I thought was uh, did not scratch the itch to put it mildly uh, they uh, vetoed it they overrode it and, I, and, and it didn't get fixed it would have been easy sort of for me to go along with that mm-hmm. bill and, and pretend that what I thought was broken was fixed mm-hmm. because I called the special session mm-hmm. uh, this was during a time when a lot of high risk Surgeons were retiring prematurely. Mm-hmm. Uh, rates were skyrocketing. Uh, OBGYNs were going out of business. And uh, it didn't get fixed. Uh, and uh, we lost a lot of good people. But uh, it would have been easy for me to do that. I just thought it was the wrong thing to do. So they overrode me. I fought and I told the people, Maryland, we tried, we lost. Mm-hmm. Tort reform. 
Yeah. So you, so you, in that case, you try. Well, you tried to do the right thing, and then you. In my uh, view, right. Right, and then you lost. So uh, let's see here. There are a lot of different issues that you've worked on uh, in elected office that matter a lot to you. Um, balanced budget uh, was a huge uh, accomplishment that all your campaign literature mentions. Uh, Congress, yeah. Well, in Congress, and, and also, of course, of course Maryland has well, a triple-A well, bond rating. But Maryland, true, yeah. Well, Maryland has, of course, you have a, a, a mandate to have a balanced budget, so that's no great accomplishment. Right. But uh, the triple-A is important. There's, I think, five or six states left now with triple-A. Mm-hmm. Uh, that saves a lot of interest costs. Mm-hmm. It is a point of great pride for uh, elected officials in Maryland mm-hmm. that we pay our bills. Mm-hmm. Look at Chicago. Today, Detroit, Detroit, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a point of, of uh, personal pride in a bipartisan way. Yeah, uh, it, it has to get done. It needs to be protected. Uh, woe will be the, the governor who loses that triple A. Yeah. So you made yeah. So you carried it over from uh, Schaefer. Yes, I suppose maintained it. Who was a great ally of mine, as you know, Governor Mandel, Governor Schaefer, both very good friends, mm-hmm. Democrats who were very willing to cross that line to mm-hmm. help a, a young Republican governor. So, uh, let's see here. We have another Republican governor in Maryland yeah. right now, Larry Hogan. Remember my cabinet, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he Good was friend. special appointment secretary in your cabinet. He was appointment secretary, correct. Right. So, uh, I, what's it like to see another Republican governor in the state of Maryland where uh, Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one? Well, it was, it's been neat on two levels, on three levels. Uh, first, just my personal issue with Larry. Uh-huh. Uh, we've been friends for 35 years. And you met him because your da- his dad was a congressman with His him. dad ran for the Senate in 1982, and I volunteered in the campaign and met Larry. So we, we've been personal friends for many years. Yeah. He thought his political career, he thought he was retired. Uh, I had to talk him out of retirement to come. Because uh, he had run for Congress work and with lost us, once. Correct. And although he ran a great race, uh, he uh, came out of retirement and helped me and got the bug again, obviously. Yeah. And it worked out pretty well. So at that level, it's been terrific. The second level is the people that worked for uh, our administration. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have come back. Right. So to see the same people uh, come back, uh, a lot of people did a terrific job for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, government uh, is important, obviously, the, the quality of government. Uh, so they've left better paying jobs in the private sector to come back to the public sector. So for me, that's a point of great personal pride mm-hmm. to have that those folks that you recruited. Mm-hmm. And then obviously third, the, the philosophical uh, issue here, that uh, just after uh, uh, eight years of, of you know, progressivism on steroids, putting a, uh, putting a little halt to that is, is helpful, at least makes me feel better. Yeah. So uh, what are some of your, and, and then, I mean, so Maryland is, is kind of an interesting state. We're a, we're a mid, mid-Atlantic state. Yeah. Um, we're small. They call it middle America, like mini-America, because it has a similar geographic, mm-hmm. uh, a wide variety of ge- geography. Yes. And, of course, there's a Republican governor now for a second time in, in a decade um, who uh, in, in a largely blue state. So is Maryland becoming more moderate, or, or has they always been moderate? What's going? Is the leadership too liberal for the people? Uh, it depends who shows up on election day. It's a blue state. It's a liberal state. Uh, look at the senators. Uh, look at the House of Delegates. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very liberal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Senate a little bit less so. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So it's a blue state, it's a liberal state. That does not mean, however, Republicans can't get elected when everything the stars fits. Align. The stars align. The stars have to align. They don't align very often. That Democrats didn't turn out is why he won. Well, uh, first of all, you have to have a strong Republican candidate. Obviously, yeah. Governor Hogan is a very strong candidate. Uh-huh. Uh, grew up in politics, knows politics. Right. Great campaigner. Sure. Um, uh, so he ran a one of the best races anyone's ever seen in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have a Democratic candidate that that may be a good person and may be successful, but that Democratic candidate can't catch on. Mm-hmm. And and Congressman, now Congressman, Brian Lancey, did yeah. not catch on. He didn't excite the Democratic base right. in your county. Right, in Montgomery County. In Montgomery so, County. So, so you have to have that. Uh, you have to have this sort of political environment mm-hmm. that allows uh, moderate Democrats in the state to say, eh, I think we'll give the Republicans another shot this time. Because don't forget, it's 58-26, I believe, mm-hmm. ratio. Mm-hmm. So Democrats should win every race. Unless they're voting for Republicans. Or not showing up. Or not showing up. So or both. So you lost your re-election campaign in 2007, yep. and we just mentioned political climate. A lot of why someone wins or loses has nothing to do with him or her that was my person. third element. That was my third element. But there. Barack Obama won. There was anti-George Bush sentiment because of the war in Iraq. There was this war in terror that kept dragging on. Was did that play a factor in Martin O'Malley's victory against you in two thousand seven? Well, I, I think that um, I don't want to sound like Hillary Clinton here. So um, there were a couple factors. One, we had, we had a pretty high approval rate, mm-hmm. but I knew in Maryland in a bad cycle. Mm-hmm that might not get it done. The other thing is, at the time, mm-hmm. Mayor O'Malley was the hottest ticket in the Democratic Party nationally. Hmm. His numbers were off the charts. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a combination of a hot ticket Democrat in a Democratic state, in a Democratic cycle, right. it was uh, too much to, uh, it overcame our approval rate, which was in the high, mid-50s, mm-hmm. which normally would get you reelected. Right. So how do you know when it's time to stop? You had been governor. You ran and you and you lost a second time to Mark Yeah, well, I did, I, I'd say I didn't learn my first lesson. Yeah. <laughs> and now and then you ended up working with Romney and, and Trump uh, for their national campaign. Well, actually, at Kasich, uh, this last cycle, yeah. I started out with Kasich, uh, who is a friend. Yeah. He was my chair on the House Budget Committee. Uh-huh. Uh, very high regard for John. And so uh, I started out with him. Mm-hmm. And when he got out of the race, uh, then I uh, did some uh, media, some uh, surrogate work for, for uh, President Trump. So, uh, all right. Well, we are approaching the end of this podcast episode. So I'd like to ask you a final two-part question, uh, Governor Ehrlich. I'd like to ask you to speak to the people of Maryland uh, as you reflect on your time in public service, both in elected office um, and, uh, and, and as an author and an attorney potentially doing public interest work. Just speak about why you've been motivated to advance the public interest for the people of Maryland. And then secondly, if you would speak about what you hope the impact will have been or is. That's easy, actually. Um, So my motivation was to get things done in in the way I wanted them done, Mm -hmm. (coughs) excuse me, to uh, further the interests of the people of Maryland. That's why you run. Mm -hmm. And so today, as a retired politician... Uh, when people come up and say to me, man, that ICC has gotten me to my kids' little league games. 
or watermen come up and say, you know, the bay's cleaner now than it has been in the last 25 years thanks to your bill. Just to interject for our listeners, ICC is inter-county connector. It's a highway. Correct. Which was postponed for 60 years yeah. <laughs> before we built it. Uh, when watermen come up and, and tell me, you know, the crabs are running great, um, and they attribute it to our Chesapeake Bay bill. Yeah. When people with disabilities come up and say, you know, uh, the fact you created that department, it's all about employment and opportunity, uh, thanks. Uh, that's as good as public life gets. That's really why you do it. There's a lot of downside. There's a lot of upside. The most up, upside gets is when people come up when you've been out of office and say, what you did impacted my life in a positive way. And that has been Maryland Governor Bob Ehrlich, former governor from 2003 to 2007, a former congressman, delegate, currently an attorney and author of multiple books, who speaks about uh, multiple ways of advancing the public interest, both his personal legacy with his family and his professional and political legacy to the people of Maryland, speaking as uh, providing anecdotes of individual times when individuals have said, you know what, you know, you may have made policies for six million people, but this particular policy, it didn't impact on my life. It made my life better, and my life is better directly as a result of some action that you, Governor Ehrlich, did. And for Bob, that's exactly why he got into public service in the first place, is to make a positive difference in individual people's lives. Uh, and having uh, stood in multiple uh, elected offices in the executive and legislative branches and the state and national level, um, surely he has left an impact uh, on American politics and has inspired many to follow in his footsteps uh, to advance the public interest. So, Governor, I'd like to thank you for joining us Enjoy. today. Proud man. Good to see you. All right. Happy to do it. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.